at the time, what was really vogue was, you know, weight loss and calorie counting and low fat. And I took the deepest dive ever into that, right? I set myself a goal that if I was going to lose weight and be skinny, that I would be happy. And the way I was going to do that was with, you know, 1200 calories and the lowest of low fat diets. So sounds, you know, ridiculous saying it now, but I was a teenager and that was certainly the culture. And it's what you would read in Girlfriend and Dolly magazine before Instagram and Facebook existed. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rate Active Podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. She's a nutritionist and she's the founder of The Natural Nutritionist. She's also the host of the Health, Happiness and Humankind Podcast. Welcome to the show, Steph Lowe. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat to you today because I guess this has been in the pipeline for a little bit. So we actually get to finally sit down and chat. And you've been doing this work for a very, very long time. And I know usually as health professionals, there's something that has happened in your personal life that brings you to this kind of work. That's generally what happens. So can you share a little bit about your journey and how you became a nutritionist? What brought you to this work? Yes, you're so right. A lot of our personal experience leads us to our career choices and how we want to serve the world in the future. So my journey goes back to when I was a teenager, feeling quite overweight, even though it might have been a bit of puberty blues. It was more challenging in early high school to feel like I was the ugly duckling per se. And at the time, what was really vogue was, you know, weight loss and calorie counting and low fat. And I took the deepest dive ever into that, right? I set myself a goal that if I was going to lose weight and be skinny, that I would be happy. And the way I was going to do that was with, you know, 1200 calories and the lowest of low fat diets. So Mm. sounds, you know, ridiculous saying it now, but I was a teenager and that was certainly the culture. And it's what you would read in Girlfriend and Dolly magazine before Instagram and Facebook existed, right? So Mm. I have a twin sister and I remember we both used to scrapbook. So we used to cut out all the articles and diets and, you know, everything you can imagine and and save all that sort of what was the education back in the day, Um, it quickly spiralled into quite significant weight loss. And I'm talking around 20 kilos, which led my mum to be quite alarmed, nervous, afraid of what was going on. You know, I wasn't eating with the family much. I was buying, you know, 99% fat-free salad dressing and I wouldn't even eat avocado. And so mum was naturally quite aware of what was going on. And she took me to see what was a dietitian at the time. And I have a very vivid memory of sitting in that office thinking to myself, how amazing this lady gets to sit here and talk about food. Mm-hmm. And that set the seed all those years ago. Now, I went on to train as a sport and exercise scientist, and then I did some work in personal training, rehabilitation, exercise physiology, and Pilates. So I was very much in the health industry, but I was working more along the sort of exercise and rehab area. 
what I then noticed was there was this distinct lack of education as well as so much confusion in the health space. Mm. And that was another little catalyst for me to see where the gap was at that time. I was also struggling a lot with mental health issues. No surprises looking back now that I had removed all healthy fats from the diet, which we know are the building blocks for our hormones, a huge component of brain integrity, uh, integrity rather, cognition. Um, and I was having, you know, some, some real challenges with what I can see now was depression, although never diagnosed. Wrapping up a very long story, I met someone who encouraged me to go gluten-free. This is over 15 years ago before we knew what gluten was, before it was part of our culture, before it was available on cafe menus and before, you know, products existed. Mm. I remember at the time being so desperate, I was willing to try anything that I did. I went gluten-free and although it came with lots of challenges, it was night and day for me. I started to see this huge shift in how I was feeling and it quickly evolved into this real food approach that I teach to this day. So Mm. gluten-free was the start, but then, of course, moving into a whole food diet, which I'm sure we'll explore today, was what transformed my health and Mm. I was so inspired to be able to spread that message further that I went back to do my postgraduate studies to be trained, qualified as a nutritionist and to do what I do today. So I'm very, very grateful to be able to have this is what I call work. Yeah. And it's so, you know, one of the great things I think as being a health professional is that you get to draw on those experiences. So you really do get to step into the shoes of really the people that you're helping because you've been there before. So you've got that personal insight that you can give to them and I think it's it's such an incredible journey just to hear like what you went through. Um, and one of the things that I think people do struggle with, you talked about cutting out gluten, but we've also got this whole, um, I guess, sugar component where mm. uh, I, f- I feel like it's a, it's a big thing. I know I've seen this when I've seen nutrition clients um, as a nutrition coach um, dealing with sugar cravings, but you specifically have also been off refined sugars for quite a while, right? And, um, you know, firstly explain what is a refined sugar because some people might not really understand what that is um, and what is it found in? Yeah, for sure. So refined sugar is something that's come from sugar cane that's quite processed, right? So it's not natural sugar like we see in a whole food state like fruit, but it's gone through a degree of processing to end up in something that looks like pretty yummy but isn't actually very healthy for us. So the obvious things that we see it in is like biscuits and cakes and lollies and ice cream. But in this day and age, we also see sugar hidden in almost every product that we could pick up on the shelf, right? So mm-hmm. when we are say trying to understand our sugar intake, one of the easiest things to do is to get good at reading labels because the front of the label is usually where all the greenwashing is and the marketing campaigns that are often actually not true if we go a little bit deeper and spin that product over and start to have a look at, all right, well, what are the top five, five ingredients? They're always listed in highest to lowest. So the first ingredient is the bulk of the product down to the last ingredient, which is usually only in really small amounts. So reading that to see if there's any obvious sugar, but we also look for terms like fructose, apple juice concentrate, food um, fruit concentrate, um, even things like agave that is seen as sort of vegan and vogue but is very high in fructose and still not the best choice. Mm. And then, of course, we want to not so worry 
about the, about the calories per se, although they are relevant. But if we're reading the nutritional information panel, we'll always look at the sugars per 100, which gives us a percentage. Mm. And I'm pretty strict, but I think like less than 12, if not less than 8%, we should be looking for. So less than 12 or even less than 8 grams of sugar per 100. And if not, it stays on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, right. And there's also other things like corn syrup, because corn syrup is a big one that sounds like it's just something made out of corn, but that's really high in, in sugar too. That's obviously a refined sugar as well, isn't it? So it's these kind of hidden ingredients that you find in products. And like you said, it's not necessarily things that maybe we associate sugar with like biscuits or sweets, but it can be in things like sauces, like tomato sauces, especially in sauces and mayonnaises and all those kinds of things. So to be really conscious of looking at those nutritional labels. So can you tell me a little bit about what you were experiencing in your body before you went off sugars? Mm. I think yeah. the biggest thing is that blood sugar roller coaster. Like I remember, mm. so this is before I was a nutritionist, I would have been early 20s working in a gym and I remember staring at the clock and like counting down the minutes until it was like two hours and I could eat again. Mm. And the reason why we are often bound by our appetite and the clock and often which perpetuates this addiction to food is because we are on what I describe as the blood sugar roller coaster. So it's these peaks and troughs in our food, in our energy rather, due to our previous food choices. So if we aren't eating enough quality protein, and healthy fats and as a result if we're eating too many carbohydrates especially refined carbohydrates we are on the blood sugar roller coaster so we experience those ups and downs in energy in mood most people are familiar with the colloquial term hangry so we feel mm. hungry and angry at the same time and it impacts our productivity our relationship, it de, um, changes our food choices. I mean, nobody craves broccoli when they're hungry, right? Even when we're hungry. <laughs> so, so true. Naturally, we're going to look for sugar, quick fixes, immediate energy, and then the vicious cycle continues. So if you think about our generation, we, as a general rule, in Western cultures at least, grew up on cereal or up and go with no protein, mm. no healthy fat. So then morning tea was a K-time bar, 99% or 97% fat-free, full of sugar. The roller coaster continues. And then we wonder why at three or four o'clock we're losing our mind and we're mm. at the vending machine or wanting lollies or more caffeine or a nap under our desk. So it's really important to acknowledge that cravings are a function of your previous meal choices. So if you're having cravings, you want to go back and have a look at the balance of your macronutrients. So in your previous meal, almost always you'll see there's not enough protein, not enough healthy fat, and we're filling up on empty carbs and we haven't got the satiety and the appetite control that we could otherwise have. Yeah. And just to clarify, protein and healthy fats, generally speaking, help you stay satiated for longer. That's what, what we're talking about here. So, you know, what was the reasoning? Did you kind of, you were conscious of this going on in your body? That's the reason why you wanted to make the shift to remove sugars from your diet. Is that sort of what was going on at the time? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it really did start from the food addiction that I had mm. and the disordered eating in my teens, which then was, I believe, the start of the mental health issues in my late teens, early twenties. And I was just 
desperate to feel better. But that really uncovered the research for me. You know, I'm a scientist by trade per se, and I don't think you can unlearn things, right? So once I uncovered the role of sugar, even if it is like baseline level blood sugar control, but all the way up to the inflammatory diseases and the avoidable lifestyle diseases that we see in our Western culture in this generation, like I just... I think that knowledge is really powerful and it was that which shaped my personal decisions. You know, not that I judge anyone that eats sugar, but I think we have to acknowledge there are better choices and we can Mm. probably look for a philosophy that looks like 80-20. You know, I still like to enjoy my food. Um, Whether I choose to eat refined sugar doesn't matter. It's up to the individual, but we need to put it in a smaller percentage of the equation, like that 80-20 rule, like 20% of the the time, if that's a choice that you choose to make. Mm. What what would then be your go-to method for I suppose someone who may be wanting to come off refined sugars or reduce the intake of refined sugars, because sometimes when you are in that addiction cycle, it's really hard to get out of it. So what are your sort of top tips for someone wanting to really remove more refined sugars from their diet or eliminate them altogether? Yeah. I mean, it does start with breakfast. Like not that I believe breakfast needs to be at a certain time of the day, because by definition, that meal just means breaking your fast. So I think we can be quite fluid with that, depending on the individual's experience today, metabolic goals and the the entire symptom picture or health picture. However, uh, it does start with breakfast. I mentioned that example of starting your day with cereal or an up and go. Like you can't be surprised if you then crave sugar as the day goes on. So a lot of the time in the West is actually completely changing our breakfast. You know, most people, when I say my first goal is to try and find um, some choices that you enjoy where you can consume breakfast, uh, vegetables for breakfast, they look at me like I've got two heads. We are so not used to having vegetables for breakfast, right? Whereas other cultures, they don't see certain mealtimes as being prescribed certain food. Mm. They would be eating sort of a dinner-like meal in our eyes for breakfast, but we're just not used to that in our culture. So I tend to move people towards egg-based meals or vegetable hashes or smoothies, you know, plant-based meals where we can start with vegetables, but then easily find ways for protein and healthy fats, whether it's eggs or a really high quality protein powder, avocado, nuts, seeds, you know, these beautiful whole foods that look how they are in nature. They don't have a high degree of human interference, Mm. which is a huge barometer for us because there's an inverse relationship, right? High degree of human interference, low nutrient density, or a low degree of human interference has a high nutrient density. And that's what we're looking for. Yeah, we're looking for as close to raw as possible, or close to untouched as, as possible. For sure. So with just, this is just a really interesting point because obviously there are whole foods that do contain fructose, like fruit, obviously, apples and bananas. Certain fruits have higher fructose component to it. So if you're eliminating sugars from your diet, is eliminating fruit part of that as well to curve those cravings for sugar because that would that would sort of I guess be part of that addiction right or is it only the refined sugars that our body registers and and is addicted to I think all sugar is relevant for Mm. sure however from the research conducted on refined sugar they are drug-like in nature in terms of their addictive qualities Mm. 
Now, in someone who's got pretty progressed metabolic conditions like type 2 diabetes, having fruit is probably not a good idea, at least at the start, because type 2 diabetes is a disease of carbohydrate intolerance. So just like if you had lactose intolerance, you would avoid lactose. If you've got carbohydrate intolerance, well, you need to avoid or at least significantly limit your carbohydrate intake. So fruits and anything of a whole food nature, even you know our starchy veggies need to be assessed. However, if you're metabolically healthy, there's no reason why you shouldn't be eating fruit. In fact, it would be encouraged for the vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and the beautiful different fibres that we can obtain to feed our biome from that microbiome perspective. Um, But I don't think fruit by itself is a good snack because you're still going to get a little blood sugar spike. It's not going to give you the satiety that you mentioned. So Mm. fruit plus a handful of nuts or a nice spread of nut butter is the perfect combo. So we're balancing out those macronutrients with the overarching aim of blood sugar control. Yeah. And just to interject quickly with the macros, just in case people don't know what macros are, we're basically talking about proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. That's what a macronutrient is. Kind of moving into sugar cravings, because even if you don't want to eliminate sugar just altogether and you've got these cravings, aside from the, I guess, starting our day with a higher fat, higher protein approach to breaking our fast, are there any other kind of steps that people can take to curb those cravings or does it really just start with what you feed yourself at the, at the beginning of the day? Well, that message does continue for our meal choices. If we think about a traditional lunch, like a sandwich or a couple of sushi rolls or a baguette or something, like how much protein do we really get in a meal like that? If you unpack your sandwich for me visually as you listen today, there's really not much. And often there's little to no healthy fats unless we're using like avocado or, you know, there's... um, other grass-fed butters or nut butters and things like that, then if we think about having like leftovers, like a dinner-style meal or a roast veggie salad with some protein and olive oil and avocado, like that is going to completely shape our experience at 3 or 3.30 or 4 o'clock. So it really does have to be addressed by those choices that we make. And everyone's got a different, um, you know, I guess in terms of those macros, like the carbs, fats and proteins that you said, everyone's going to thrive on a different ratio, right? If you've got metabolic disease, we know your carbs are going to be a lot lower. If you're very active and lean and young and there's no family history there, well, of course, you can tolerate more carbohydrates, right? So there's a little bit of, I think, hacking and experimentation required. But the question you can always ask yourself is, how long does this keep me full for? If you eat something and you're full in two hours or or maybe even three hours, you can often know or at least go back and have a look there probably wasn't enough protein and or healthy fats in there and then you can tweak the meal you don't need to change it all together necessarily but you can tweak it and extend the satiety so then you're eating every four hourly which is good for cognition and productivity but also our metabolic goals and our gut resting our gut is really important Mm. rather than grazing all day which I see too many people doing and then they're wondering why they're constantly bloating or they're experiencing something that looks like irritable bowel syndrome. Mm. Yeah, so it's just uh, adjusting, taking note of the macro combinations and really understanding what works for you, what's going to satiate you for a longer period of time to help curb those cravings. So one thing that you do speak a lot about is this misconception of the standardised 
quote unquote standardized food pyramid that I think, you know, if you've studied nutrition, you all get shown this, this pyramid that has all the sort of breads and um, refined, refined sugars, refined carbs at the mm. bottom that you technically should be consuming most of. This is what they suggest, right? And so it's, it's kind of in a way quite ridiculous to look at because this is part of mainstream messaging, right? This is, this is what we are taught through mainstream media. So I'm curious to know how do you think it should be and what ideally should that pyramid look like? Yeah, it almost needs to be upside down, right? Almost, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's, it's really ridiculous when you look mm-hmm. at it and it's kind of mind-blowing that that as a, you know, a health professional, you get taught this, that you're supposed to then. It's really sad because, yeah. it, it, we, you know, I okay, so 10 years ago I could probably have excused it, but the amount of like research and education and awareness we now have in this day and age, like it, it can't be excused that like the curriculum at the universities and even in the primary school level hasn't been updated. Like I have teachers, I have clients who are teachers that have to split the board down and say, all right, this is what you need to learn for the exam, but this is the truth. I mean, how ridiculous is that sort of so, messaging, right? Yeah, when we could just be starting at that grassroots level. So I get criticised a lot for using terms like big food or big pharma, but I believe they are they, they are a big part of the problem, right? So yes. big food are these large multinational companies. If you follow any of um, Belinda and Gary Fetke's work, you'll see it goes way back in time to the Seventh-day Adventist church and cereal being essentially what they were selling and that then started the, the, re- the funded research, right? You've always got to understand who's funding the research before you take the, the conclusions too far. And we see that now in our food pyramid, very heavy on the carbohydrates, still demonising fats. I mean, there have been some slight changes in recent years. So mm. it's happening. But I think what we'll see now with, with Gary Fetke, James Mukey, who was the Australian of the Year last year, Dr. Peter Bruckner, that these three are powerhouses and they're getting together to completely change our guidelines, our dietary guidelines in Australia. Mm. So pay attention. The change is happening. Um, but we do really need to be mindful not to fall into the trap, which also applies to those silly health star ratings where we see low-fat products, companies just buying the health star ratings so it looks good mm-hmm. and consumers putting it in their shopping trolley because they think it's healthy. Yeah. And then we see healthy fats given like one and a half stars when it's like an olive oil or something, you know, pure, yeah. just like it is in nature or very close to. So, you know, we've got to be savvy. We've got to be mindful of the greenwashing that that marketing that does come from big food and I think yeah turn a lot of things upside down including our plates yeah the the portion size is what you're talking about in terms of plates right well plates in terms of like so if we use pasta as an interesting example like most Australians eat pasta to some degree but we've sat down to like three cups of pasta with a little bit of something on top. If you want to eat pasta, I celebrate that, but let's turn it around. Let's put like a little bit of pasta and then lots of vegetables and protein and healthy fats on top. So we've completely, we're having the same food, but we've completely changed the nutrient density. So it's much greater in nutrient density when we've got more plants and proteins and healthy fats. Mm. And then much better for our blood sugar control if we're not sitting down to cups and cups of carbohydrates that are relatively nutrient poor. Yeah. So that's yeah. upside down. And then I do love the saying that is breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, 
dinner like a pauper. Again, in the West, we eat all of our food at night, two courses, dessert. We lie on the couch and we go to bed. And then we wonder why we've got digestive issues and sleep issues. We don't need that much food at night. We're better off having like more of our food in the day and then finishing with a lighter, earlier dinner to help digestion, moving into fasting, gut healing, and then, of course, helping our melatonin and our sleep production. Yeah, yeah. I really like that approach too. And I know I know that too, I mean, in the space, the nutritional space, there's a lot of, a lot of different, you know, theories, people, there's backlash, there's, you know, all these different, um, I guess, conflicting ideas. And the low-carb nutritional approach does often receive, you know, sort of, backlash but it's I guess we're talking more about refined refined sugar I mean it's, it's not bad to have carbs that are existing in obviously because vegetables have carbs mm. in it you know so you're obviously looking then at the what the component is or what what the actual density is of those carbs like is it high GI or low GI you know so you've kind of got to get into that part too right so we're talking about yeah flipping it upside down is what you're saying basically um to, without, I think yeah. language is most important here like this is what mm. I see happening someone hears low carb and they visualize that times magazine picture of this ginormous steak with a slab of butter which could not be further from the truth right so we're mm. defining what is low carbohydrate I mean lower than the food pyramid which you and I have already agreed is a very good thing that food mm. pyramid would have us all eating 400, maybe even 600 grams of carbohydrates a day. The recipe for a lot of people to metabolic dysfunction, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, all these avoidable conditions that never actually had to occur by and large, right? Mm. So lower than the food pyramid, lower than the middle of the supermarket aisles where we see food-like products. They are not food. They are made in a lab. They have the perfect balance of salt, sugar, and fat to keep you addicted. They do not fuel health, right? So Mm. we think about the other concept is the perimeter shop. What do we find in the perimeter? Fruit, veg, maybe some full fat dairy, our um, grass-fed butters, you know, and our nuts and seeds, hopefully. You might go into the middle of the aisles for some tea bags and some new HT coconut milk or something, some canned tomatoes, but you really don't buy or you shouldn't be buying much of your food from the aisles because that is where the food-like products live. Mm. Mm, that's a really good tip too, just in in – when you walk into the store, just make sure you stay on the outer edges. Or go to so, the farmer's market even better. But, you know, if we yeah. are shopping at Coles or Woolworths, <laughs> that's the principle we want to follow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the things that is kind of tied into this is fat adaptation. And mm-hmm. to me, it's super interesting. And I think maybe perhaps people listening may be most familiar with the term keto in relation to this. So the keto diet, which is a very high protein, high fat um, approach to nutrition. That's probably one of the, the buzzwords that I think we've heard more in mainstream um, messaging. So can you take us through how someone can actually become fat adapted and what does that actually mean? Yeah. So, I mean, if we start with the definition, it's this metabolic reorchestration, right? So if we follow the food pyramid, we have a metabolism that's fueled on those carbohydrates that are those sugars. Essentially, that's why we need to eat so often. That's why we're often bound by our appetite and we get hangry and and so on at 3.30 in the day. Whereas when we shift our macronutrients, when we start to eat more healthy fats, moderate protein, predominantly plant-based still, but we drop those refined carbohydrates, then our body can start to burn fat as fuel. Now, you mentioned keto and I don't disagree, but the interesting thing about someone who's already metabolically healthy they don't need to be in keto 
to be burning fat, right? Mm. So lots of my clients could be having, you know, 100, 150 grams of carbohydrates a day and still be burning fat for fuel. Mm. Whereas by definition, keto is down at like 25 less than 50 grams of carbs a day, right? It's quite a big sliding scale. And where you sit depends on lots of factors. Some are genetic and most are your metabolic health at this current point in time. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting because when you burn fat, you actually feel better like mentally. You've got more, you know, enhanced cognition, greater productivity. So a lot of people notice that for work, but then you also find that you also have that satiety. You're not eating every couple of hours. It might be five hours and you're like, okay, great. It's lunchtime. You haven't been counting down the hours or the minutes like I used to do. And a lot of my clients are doing when they first come to work with me at the natural nutritionist. So it's, it's really fascinating. I think it is important that we do have that capacity to shift our metabolism, because if we look at the reasons why, Ultimately, ultimately, to me, it's about longevity. So mm. if we're burning a lot of sugar, then we're actually producing these reactive oxygen species, which are pro-inflammatory. And long-term, especially if the genetics aren't so favourable, that can start to cause these lifestyle diseases. Whereas fat doesn't produce any reactive oxygen species, right? It's very clean in terms of a fuel, very anti-inflammatory. So it's incredible for us to avoid these lifestyle diseases and also improve our health span, not just our lifespan, right? Our health span. So we're aging well and we have longevity um, as a goal rather than it just being purely aesthetic, which I'm fine with. If you want to burn fat to lose fat, go for it. Mm. But longevity should be that primary goal. Yeah. So it's more about the the whole picture of your health, not just one aspect of it. For sure. So one other thing is I think a lot of people tend to Uh, self-diagnose themselves actually with food intolerances like gluten and dairy and all those kinds of things. What's the biggest problem with this? Because I definitely know that I've, you know, when you speak to friends or whatever, they might say, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm intolerant to gluten or dairy, but not really having, I guess, a proper, I don't know if it's a diagnosis that you Mm. you need specifically, but um, is there a problem to self-diagnosing yourself with intolerances? And what's the actual best way to know that you actually are intolerant to certain things? Because, you know, gluten and dairy intolerance is kind of, it almost came off as a bit of a trend like a few years back, you know what I mean? So um, Mm. can you talk a little bit to that or speak a little bit to that? Yeah, it's very vogue. So I think in, as a nutritionist, what I always like to do is look at, all right, if I was to remove a certain food, am I at risk of a deficiency? Mm. So if I never ate gluten, would I have a gluten deficiency or what nutrients would I be deficient in? None, if I followed a whole food diet. So unfortunately in that space, you hear a lot of people, usually dietitians, who say unless you've got celiac, it's dangerous to remove gluten, which I strongly disagree with, right? There's no danger to eating gluten-free if you move to a whole food diet. Don't go and buy gluten-free products that are full of shitty carbohydrates and very nutrient poor. Eat whole food, which will then actually have you being gluten-free 99% of the time anyway, right? Mm, And then if we look at what should we be eating, well, we should be encouraging everyone to be eating foods that look like how they came out of the ground, off a tree or from an animal that a ladder is a personal preference, of course. We shouldn't be encouraging people to be eating processed and refined grains, which is really where you find gluten. Mm. 
Now, Mm -hmm. there is also a lot of research. There's a very well-known researcher by the name of Alessio Fasano. He writes the book Gluten Freedom and was the scientist who discovered zonulin, that inflammatory protein that can cause increased intestinal permeability, otherwise known as leaky gut. So Mm. you don't need to have the autoimmune disease, celiac disease, to be triggered or bothered by eating gluten. Like I don't eat it. If I eat it, I feel depressed. I get skin rashes. I have digestive issues. To me, that's enough to to, to pay attention. You know, our body speaks loud and clear. Mm. Now, if you find that it's not only gluten, but it's, I'll come back to dairy in a second, but if it's not only dairy, but it's onion and it's apples and it's tomatoes and it's X, Y, and Z, it's not the food, it's the ecosystem. So often what we actually have to do is use that information as light on the dashboard that something's actually wrong. And we go deeper and look for the root cause, which is one of two things usually. Dysbiosis, so something up with the microbiome, an imbalance in that ecosystem, or it could be something called SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So still gut-related but higher up the gastrointestinal tract. So Mm. usually we don't eliminate those foods long-term. We might remove some triggers to avoid irritation, obviously, and symptoms, but we would need to do some testing to identify what's driving the imbalance, heal and seal the gut, repopulate the ecosystem. And then I believe we should be able to tolerate most, if not all, foods again because elimination diets are not designed to be long-term, especially FODMAP. We see this all the time, people doing it long-term. It actually can starve the biome. And even sort of Monash University, who are the leaders in the research around the low FODMAP approach, have totally reframed all of their resource and education literature around it being a short-term intervention. So we do it for symptom mitigation while we heal the gut or we work out that root cause. Yeah. Now, dairy is a little different, but do you want to jump in there? No, no, you go ahead. Yeah, go for dairy. Dairy is different if we think about evolution for a second. So cow's dairy is a specific type of casein that is very, very different to, say, goats or sheep, which resembles human breast milk. So we often find cow's dairy isn't actually that well tolerated and it releases these certain um, inflammatory cytokines and can cause a lot of issues, whether it's skin or heavy periods or dysmenorrhea or inflammation. Whereas humans, naturally, um, most of us being at least designed to grow up on human breast milk, whether we did or not, can tolerate sheeps or goats. So I tend to like those when they're from high quality sources, but I am definitely of the belief that not a lot of us tolerate cows in um, very much at like quantity at all. Mm. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is really when we're talking about intolerances, they're more a, a, a signal for a bigger problem rather than a, an issue in itself because it's not so much that, okay, I'm intolerant to this, so if I cut this out, this is going to solve the mm. the problem or the symptoms that I'm experiencing, but rather it's a, it's, it's a pinpoint or something to go, okay, hang on a second, we need to look a little bit deeper and balance out the whole system so that we can, again, like you said, reintroduce those foods where – Essentially, then you're reversing your intolerance, but mm. it's really, it really, it's your body telling you that something's not quite right. Symptoms are so powerful. They are the lights on the dashboard, right? Hopefully, mm. when we see the light on our dashboard in our car, we go to the petrol station, right? Or we know what mm. happens. So these symptoms are so powerful. Like I meet people who have had so such significant gut issues 
They just keep getting told to eliminate food until they're left with literally two foods, no exaggeration. How can you survive like that? Like that's mm. just not a long-term strategy. That's mm. that's not a solution, right? That's not a root cause approach. Whereas spending a little bit of money and time to work out, all right, is it dysbiosis? Is it my SIBO? What, what is it? You know, what is the cause of this? Then we fix the problem forever. So we've got a root cause approach. Yeah. And I think just framing it that way, just understanding that it is a symptom, it's not the cause of, mm. that makes a huge difference because I think oftentimes, you know, that's that's kind of the initial thought is that, okay, so I've got this intolerance, so I just need to get rid of this part of my diet. So kind of moving then into into gut health because mm. like we've just spoken about, I mean, I know for me, I, I know that I need to take a break from gluten or, or dairy or lactose when I need to give my gut a break. And this is just personally because it, I feel it, usually it's after when you've been overindulging in highly processed foods or alcohol or things like that. So can you take us through the importance of gut health and microbiome health and what are the best ways to do that? Because what, you know, we obviously need to have it in balance for our bodies to be working and functioning at an optimal level. So how, how do we do that exactly? Yeah. So if we start with some definitions, I mean, everyone's probably heard of the saying that all disease starts in the gut, right? And so we like to also say, well, so too does all health. So if we're trying to achieve optimal health, well, a huge part of that focus does need to be on our internal ecosystem so the stats are quite different depending on who you listen to but some people believe we're about 10 percent human so we're like literally you know 90 percent um bacteria and um microbes essentially but it might even be more like one percent with the evolution of the new technology that we've got the metagenomic sequencing that we now have access to when we sequence someone's bio and we're literally looking at just trillions <laughs> our understanding is just incredible now we we just know that we are the human host for this ecosystem and we must have a focus there right then of course what is that focus well the one thing everyone can agree on is that we need a diverse microbiome so picture a rainforest for me it's this beautiful environment of flourishing species different plants all different sizes and different ages and they all play different roles but they function together as one ecosystem so we want a diverse biome how do we create a diverse biome with diverse food so diversity in our fibers so there's lots of different types of fibers but there's you know resistant starch pectin fructo oligosaccharides galacto oligosaccharides it kind of doesn't matter at that level of detail if we eat lots of different plants we eat the rainbow we eat whole foods we avoid inflammatory foods and we actually avoid too much protein which a western diet a little bit guilty of as well. Mm. Why I see such incredible microbiomes is because I see a lot of clients who have followed that just eat real food mantra for a very long time. So they've been feeding their biome, these beautiful fibers. They've reduced or eliminated a lot of the pro-inflammatory foods. So that's, I think, something that we can all agree on, which is actually quite simple in ethos, mm. real food. Mm. Um, and then, of course, there's finer detail because there's this sort of hypothesis that we need to understand someone's history. You know, if, you're, if your mother was exposed to antibiotics in utero, if you were cesarean born, formula fed with lots of antibiotic exposure in youth and then now using hand sanitizers, face masks and you're in lockdown inside, well, your gut is very different to a 
healthy pregnancy, natural born, breastfed, minimal antibiotics out in nature now, breathing fresh air and not being exposed to these toxins, right? So the Mm. environment is really, really key. Anyone who has a long history of antibiotic exposure usually has more work to do. You can completely course correct, which is incredible, but we have to have a look at that history because often it tells the story in great detail if we go back in time and unpack I've never been the same since. What happened? Yeah. What what might explain why we've got these gut issues now in our 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s? Yeah. The gut is really kind of where it needs to be, I guess, solid and balanced, right? Because mm. it, it kind of affects everything else. That's not, and not just our digestive system, but every our mood, our emotions, our mental of health, course. all of that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. How exciting is that though, that we have the knowledge now of the connection, the vagus nerve connecting the gut and the brain. And that's where we're going for research to understand mental health rather than just giving someone a pill. Like that to me is so exciting that we've got the technology and the incredible scientists and research that are uncovering this for us. I often think like, where will we be in 10 years, in 20 years time? Like we're really going to change this, this scope of just giving someone a pill. We're going to go root cause, which I'm so passionate about. Yeah, definitely. This is a holistic approach to our health and our whole, I would say whole person, because it's not just the body, but it's all those other aspects as well, Mm. especially now, because obviously we've gone through COVID and had so many lockdowns and mental health is at the forefront of messaging, which is great. But now that we know these things are all interlinked and that's been, I guess, ingrained a little bit more in, in cultural messaging, it's great that we can have the conversations to educate people about I know. And what about community? Like mm. the research on yeah, the role of community for mental health and, and the collateral damage of lockdown. Like I'm sure we're not here to talk about that, but it's very relevant with what we're seeing with the the huge um endemic of mental health disorders. Yeah, definitely. I think it's I think it's a good time for just linking everything together and for people to have that um, accessible to them to use, you Mm. know. Okay. So you also have spoken about how iron deficiencies are one of the most common things that you see in clinic and especially or particularly with women. What are the key indicators to look out for with iron deficiency? Yeah, it's a really interesting space. If you think about um, the way I would start to work with a client, I would ask them, you know, what are their primary health goals? But we'd spend a bit of time unpacking a lot of their symptoms, right? And a common symptom that we see in 2021 is fatigue. But fatigue is like an interesting but somewhat confusing symptom because there could be so many things that could be causing fatigue. So one of the things I'm really passionate about doing with my clients is some some comprehensive testing and it almost always starts with some pathology because then we can understand, all right, well, what is going on? And when it comes to iron, obviously females of menstrual cycle age are of higher risk because of our monthly blood loss. And then if there's any dysmenorrhea, heavy periods and issues there, then naturally that's going to perpetuate the problem. And so the solution is not to offer your client multifer or Ferrograd. The solution is actually, all right, let's do some testing and understand what's going on, but also work out what the root cause is. Mm. So in a case where it is some hormonal issues, 
is that's where we need to obviously be going to understand, all right, well, that this blood loss is actually the root cause of the iron deficiency, which is the root cause of the fatigue. So mm. we would unpack that. Um, initially, dairy freeze, uh, like a cow's dairy freeze, one of the biggest things that we would do in that case because of that inflammatory cascade um, that casein, the cow casein can cause. So we would definitely do that. But the other side to iron is that with these traditional prescriptions like Veragrad or Multifor, which we usually hear being recommended in more of a conventional setting, like with a doctor, they don't actually reflect our understanding of iron physiology. So what we know is that if someone is given really high doses, like 100 milligrams, which we find in one of these capsules, if someone is given 100 milligrams of iron, what also happens is something called hepcidin increases, which actually blocks the iron entry into the cell. So it doesn't work. It actually mm. blocks the uptake of the iron. And then because it blocks the uptake, it also blocks the dietary uptake when someone's eating iron from whether it's, you know, red meat or um, spinach. Mm. It, so it actually causes the problem to get worse. But then the prescription is, oh, take more, take two a day or take three a day because it's not enough when it's the high amount of iron that's causing the issue. So what we now know is that we need to actually change our prescription completely. We do much lower doses, like less than 60 milligrams, and then we often do what's called an alternate day supplement prescription where every second day can increase absorption by about 34%. And then, of course, we've got to talk about the right kind of product while you're fixing someone's heavy period or maybe it's their gut, their poor absorption that's causing their iron deficiency. Mm -hmm. While you're fixing that, we will need a supplement so we can address the fatigue. But what is the supplement? It's not multiple, it's not Veragrad, but which cofactors does this individual need? You know, I'm a big fan of something called lactoferrin, which is an iron-containing protein which allows the iron to be absorbed at the small intestine. So it decreases a lot of the com common bloating and constipation and gastrointestinal issues that people commonly associate with iron supplementation. But then, of course, there's vitamin A, there's prebiotics, there's actually probiotics that can increase iron absorption. So it's actually kind of complicated. It does need to be mm. taken on a case-by-case -case basis. But it absolutely needs to look at testing because you shouldn't be doing anything off ferritin alone, which is the iron storage protein in the liver that is often only tested. Mm. We need testing hemoglobin, transferrin, transferrin saturation, ferritin, iron, C-reactive protein, at least six things we need to be testing. And then we need to understand iron physiology, prescribe appropriately in the short term, address the root cause in the long term. Yeah, it's actually yeah, it's very complex because I was you've you sort of just answered my next question, which is talking mm. about how we actually um, re replace that deficiency. And obviously, there's a, a variety of different ways that the deficiency is caused, whether that's through the gut, whether it's through the reproductive system, and so therefore the approach will be different. And it could be a combination of not only your diet and and the foods that you're consuming, but then also supplementation, but the right mm. course of supplementation for whatever is going on in your body. And red meat has caught such a bad rap over the last few years, right? And it will continue to with the vegan movement and the saturated fat myth that will seem to never die. But I'm, I'm of the belief that really well ethically raised, pasture raised, grass-fed meat 
does have its place for the majority of people um, and we need to unpack our relationship with meat and some of the myths and also our ethics, which is a really big part of the conversation for a lot of people. Mm. But, you know, unless you want to take a supplement for life, we need to look at the diet and the root cause. The root cause to get, yeah, a really full picture of what's going on and to address it appropriately. Um, So one of the things that I do like to ask all my guests is uh, what has been your biggest failure or rejection and what have you learnt from it? So what do you think that would be for you? Yeah, I mean, I don't actually, no criticism, but I don't like the word failure. (laughs) (laughs) No, none taken. Like in terms of a lesson, like I have shared this story once or twice before, but I actually have a couple of books and one I self-published and it's called The Real Food Athlete, but it was like the hardest stressful, most, you know, quite complicated journey. And there's a lot lot of things that I would do differently. And I think it's more just about, you know, I was so determined to achieve that goal that I probably was focused on the summit rather than on the steps to get there. And Mm. I see this a lot in clients, right? If you've got a goal, it can be so all-consuming to look at that goal, like not being fatigued or having, you know, great microbiome health that we forget about the steps to take along the way. So it taught me that and it's something I teach clients in a different context that health is achieved by these daily decisions, these small changes and these steps that we achieve day to day rather than looking at the summit all the time. So the learnings that I have from that sort of book publishing, that self-publishing journey, I think can be applied to health. And it's good to have the summit, but we've got to work out how to get there. Yeah, the process, right? The the, act, mm. the small action steps that we have to take. Yeah, that's a great lesson. And the other question that I like to ask my guests is, if you had a life philosophy to which you try to live your life by, what would that be? Number one for me is transparency. So I think that's why I've been so passionate about busting food myths, Mm. you know, whether it was the low-fat era, cholesterol, saturated fat, low-carb, keto, iron supplementation, the oral glucose tolerance test, GBS screening. Like there's so many things I find myself talking about that are completely against our cultural narrative. Mm. And I'm so passionate about that because we do have a lot of unlearning to do in the West And then with the COVID space, you know, I won't talk about it in too much detail, but I have got myself quite involved in that space. And I think a lot of it is to do with the lack of transparency that we've seen. You know, why aren't we hearing our leaders talk about the role of low vitamin D and poor metabolic health? It's the end of 2021 at the time of recording and no one's talking about these risk factors and comorbidities. So Mm. I've made it my mission, or at least at times I have, to make sure we have some transparency around the current global situation and what we can be doing to reduce our risk. And so transparency is so important to me. Oh, that's amazing. I like that one because I think it it just kind of translates not only through any kind of context that you talk about with work, but just life in general, right? And mm. just being almost ties in with authenticity in a way, which yeah. is, you know, you always want to be that. I call a spade a spade. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Brutal honesty. <laughs> well, amazing, Steph. Thank you so much for um, joining me today. I think it's been such an incredible chat. And I think This is such a jam-packed episode. There's so much in here. And so if you guys have any other questions, we can definitely explore them further. But where can people find you, Steph? 
Yes, thank you. So my online home is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. So I spend most of my time these days talking to my online community there. So you can definitely subscribe to the list to get my latest research, um, recipes and podcasts delivered to you directly. But I'm also on the usual platforms, Instagram and Facebook is The Natural Nutritionist. Um, I do a little bit of tweeting, but I'm sure you can find me there under Steph Lowe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so many uh, amazing resources on Steph's website. So make sure you check it out and also her Instagram as well. And thanks so much again, Steph, for chatting to me today. And thanks, guys, for listening. Make sure you screenshot this episode and share it to your IG stories. And again, tag at The Natural Nutritionist and at Rach Active. And also tell us what you liked about the episode. Tell us what you loved. Tell us what you learned. Give the podcast a rating and review. We'd love to hear your feedback. But We'll catch you next time on the Rate Active Podcast.